man, I'm telling you, this, gen- this flood account is massive. I mean, this story, just know, when you just really dig in there, climb into it, it's massive. I mean, just a big steak sandwich. And I, I um, really, it snuck up on me. I, it surprised me that it was going to be so significant. I was anticipating tonight us covering really about three chapters, and that's not going to happen. So, But I want to just start with a quick review. Let me start with prayer and just ask the Lord to escort us into the throne room and hear His heart and His design and see His gospel and His... Um, that's really loud. Okay. I was pretty good where it was. I don't know what you did there, but... All right, let's pray. <clears throat> God, thank you for the time we have, have together tonight. What a delightful, marvelous story of uh, both judgment and preservation of uh, your remnant and Noah and his family and about covenant making and covenant keeping. And I just pray tonight that we as your people will see how we fit in and how your redemptive character has worked out over the ages and how each of these things point to your design and your plan and your glory. And just pray that we'll be a people that are captivated tonight that'll walk away enjoying our Bibles more, enjoying you more, enjoying our gospel more, our Christ more, clinging to him more desperately. I just pray that it will invade every um, every space and compartment that we tend to live in, uh, that it will invade weekdays and dinner tables and cubicles and lunch breaks and uh, long commutes, and um, that we'll just enjoy you and just we'll be that people that are worshiping as we go through life. And uh, just pray that you'll, you'll give birth to that through these times that we engage you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to do a brief, um, is it me? Am I readjusting this? Okay, well, I will leave it alone. Scare me to death. I'm coming in and out here. Uh, a brief review, Genesis 6-5. It seems like I'm really loud, Cody. And, uh, yeah, you can turn me down a good bit. Um, Genesis 6-5 is where I want to start tonight. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth... And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, just let that darkness hit you for a moment. And think about it. Great wickedness, great corruption, mankind all over the earth. Or at least for the part of the earth that was populated at that time. Characterized by every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, that sounds pretty bad. But then here's the beauty. Here's the but God. I think probably my, fam- my, my favorite passage of Scripture is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where Paul presents to the church at Ephesus, he says, you, you guys, you Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking according to the prince of the power of the earth. Um, but you weren't alone because we too all also walked according to his ways. And then in verse 4 it says, but God made us alive together with Christ. It's the turning point of that passage. And this is the but God right here in chapter 5 of 29. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. There's incredible darkness on the earth, incredible wickedness. The thoughts of man's heart is evil continually, but then God is bringing a man to rescue mankind. And this man is going to be drawn from the ground 
Um, he will bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, that's exciting. We're going to climb into that story. But I can't climb into that story until I just at least connect this dot. Look over to chapter 8, verse 21. This is after the flood, after the water um, drains. And when the Lord drained, it didn't subsides, it abates. I'm just visioning like this big drain, you know, gurgle, gurgle. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this is Noah got off the ark and made a sacrificial offering there. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I wish that said was. I wish there was something different after the flood than there was before the flood. But it's really the same story. We just have a new ark now. It's a different ark. It's not shaped like a boat. It's shaped like a cross. I don't know that it was made from gopher wood, but that's our ark, and our our Noah is Christ. So I want to at least connect that dot before we climb back into this story because I want you to see in this story our story. Okay. Let's go back. I want to start in, uh, in Genesis 6, verse 5 here in just a moment. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 9, verse 20. So I'm going to read a big chunk of Scripture because I want us to take, at least today, a bird's eye view, and I'm going to give you some introductory material. And if we get to it, we're going to low crawl through the first few verses, probably, hopefully, the rest of chapter 6. But I want you to know that this story comes midway between Adam and Abraham. Okay, in Genesis, the development from Adam to Abraham, this is like the 50-yard line. And this guy, this Noah, is an important figure in the whole development of Genesis. Okay, in the flood, God wipes out the seed of the serpent. If you remember in the fall, the consequences of the fall, basically God is, look over in chapter 3, verse 15, a specific verse that kind of sets the tone for the whole rest of the book of Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman... He's speaking to uh, the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he's introducing four characters there. You, um, the woman's offspring, and the woman, and yeah, you and the woman, and then Satan being the you, Satan's offspring, and the woman's offspring. Okay, so for the rest of the Revelation, it's kind of this picture of Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring going back and forth, kind of competing, running this race. Okay, all right, so that's the context here. God is wiping out the seed of the serpent right here completely. But the bummer is he rears his ugly head again. The, actually, the seed of the woman who's Noah and his family actually gives birth to the seed of the serpent yet again. Through, you remember which son? Does anybody know off the top of your head? You'll know in the next couple of weeks. Ham. You remember Ham's son? Did really got the curse? Canaan, which is where the Canaanites came from, that actually inhabited the promised land that were eradicated for God's people to come in. Okay, there's some cool dots that are getting connected through these, these stories like this. Noah and his family give birth to the seed of the serpent yet again. This story also introduces us to the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping character of God. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know about y'all. If you have, I think probably the Presbyterians spend a lot of time talking about covenant 
making and covenant keeping and God's covenant with Abraham. Because they, have, I think, typically have a more uh, God's people view on the gospel and things like that. I think that's something that I've been deficient in, at least in my background, is the picture of God as being a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. And the gravity of him making covenant with man. And this is the very first picture of God making covenant with man. And you're going to see that he keeps his covenant, which is pretty exciting. Okay, But if you're like me, this is underdeveloped, so this will be um, a robust truth for you. So if you don't like to be read to, that you need to change that because that's man, that's good stuff. You just kind of you might need to figure out how do I resonate with it? Do I close my eyes or do I read along? I'm in the ESV, and if you're like me, then if you don't actually have that version, it's hard to follow along in another version. So maybe closing your eyes or or something. But chapter six, verse five: <clears throat> The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart. Did you bring me those copies, Todd? Where are they? Okay, if you bring them up here, that'd be good. Thanks. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But, <laughs> it's kind of like the but God of Ephesians 2, 4, isn't it? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I, there's another but God, and I just love it. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 
Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of, an- of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God has commanded, had, had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600 year of, 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three, son, three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, and they and every beast according to its kind. And all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all of the flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the face of the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God, <laughs> oh, I love those two words, remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. <clears throat> At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to, continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and, and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. And never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all, all flesh. When the bow is in, in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Whew. Man, that was, a, that was a long one. That's necessary for us to do that, though, because we're going to take a bird's eye uh, view of this whole story, and uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack it. We might be able to unpack it in uh, just a couple of weeks, but I want us to take our time on it. I realize that for me, most of my life, this has been treated in one Sunday school lesson or one sermon or, you know, one engagement, and it's just too rich for that. Um, let's start, at, let's talk about Noah, first of all. Turn back to chapter 6, verse 9. Here are a few things that we know about Noah. Noah walked with God, chapter 6, verse 9, says that he is blameless in his generation, that Noah walked with God. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says God is speaking and he says, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So he walked with God, 
and he's found righteous. There's also a, some evidence of Noah's character, chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did this. He's been given instructions to build an ark, to take two by two of all the animals. And here's what Noah did. Now, this is easy for us to dismiss in one little verse, but you've got to think about the gravity of what he's done. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. Okay, that's a refrain that you'll hear throughout this story. You'll see it again in chapter 5, verse 6. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So this is what we know about Noah, which in many ways is our daddy. If we're of the people of God, he's one of our daddies. Okay, Noah walked with God. God found him righteous. And his character here is that he did all that God commanded him. Something else that's true about Noah is, as wool is characteristic to a sheep, something else that's true about Noah is he tended to his animals and he tended to his family. Think about the amount of time that he was on this zoo boat. It was, all, it was really over a year. It was a year and about 10 days. I'm going to show you the timeline here in a minute. But that's a long time to be stuffed up with every sort of creature you can possibly think of. When I was a kid growing up, <clears throat> I worked for my dad, who's a veterinarian. And uh, not for money, mind you, just for food and clothing and shelter and, uh, and turtles. Yeah, I could get you know, all the turtles I could tend to, yeah. But my job as a kennel man, basically, it's really where I learned to gag. It was, um, I mean, I was a young kid and uh, cleaning up these kennels all day. You know, little, you know, animals, especially the sick ones, can do some amazing things in a little metal kennel. And... Um, I remember my dad coaching me on how to clean a kennel because I could just sit there and look at it and gag. But imagine having a year of that with every sort of smell, every sort of sound. Imagine just the sounds for a year of being stuffed up in a boat. I spent six months on a boat where about two and a half months of it, we were off the boat. I can only imagine what it must have been like to be on this thing for a year where all you've got to even look at is just water. Whoosh. Maybe the last few months you start to see little mountaintops and things like that. But you're hearing just the screams of chimpanzees and macaws and every other loud jungle bird and creature that you can think of and elephants. I read something that actually suggested that maybe that they kind of hibernated during this period, that that may have made it more scientifically feasible? <laughs> How do you feed those sort of animals? How do you take along that amount of food for those sort of animals? Like a bear can hibernate for a long period of time without eating, that maybe the animals kind of went into sort of a hibernation state. Maybe they did, but I, I just don't believe that Shem, Ham, and Japheth hibernated, or their wives. And just imagine being stuffed up with three other couples, even if they're family, maybe especially if they're family for a year on the ark and just this picture of his character and his faithfulness here and recognizing that this was no small feat it makes for a nice cute little movie and it makes for a cute little kid story but this may have been I mean, take survivor what is that 40 days man that's a joke compared to this i mean just imagine what this must have been like I mean, just take some time and talk about it as a family and think about it. Just imagine the details. Noah's story, let me give you kind of a bird's eye of Noah's story. While we have great affection for his, um, his work here, he is the righteous hero that saves humanity and the animals. 
what we'll find later as we move into chapter 9 is that he's also the drunken sinner that precipitates the second fall of man through Ham and Canaan. Okay, so while he's still, while he's a bit of hero, he's also very human. Now, something I want to show you, I'm going to pass something out to you. Uh, actually, Bob, can you help me with this? And um, Gary, can you pass out on this side? I was going to try and explain this to you without you seeing it, but I want you to be able to see it because there's no way that I could explain this. As that's being passed out, I want to share with you just kind of a thought. <clears throat> Whenever National Treasure came out at the theaters, man, I went and saw that movie, and I was like, man, that's a good movie. It's a pretty good movie, I thought. And the, the drama of finding these clues, you know, it's every kid's dream to participate in something like that. And uh, it's funny, the last couple of weeks, just channel surfing, I've seen it two other times, or parts of it. You know, when you're channel surfing, you always see like the last third, which a woman can't watch, but a man can totally watch. So I'm totally watching like the last third or the first quarter or whatever, you know, getting extrapolating the rest of it. But I, I was thinking about this, this story of the National Treasure where this guy, Nicolas Cage, and his dad, they kind of have this love-hate relationship with all these guys that have provided all these clues. I don't know if it was the Masons. I can't remember. Was it the Masons? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's almost like this love-hate relationship as they talk about these guys in these letters. You know, that, that they love the drama of finding the clues, but yet they hate them because they're, they're beginning to believe that, that it's elusive, that there really is no treasure. But as I was thinking about that, I was thinking that for them, the enjoyment that they have from the clue makers, that in many ways, if we'll be like those kind of people digging into the Word, then we'll have affection for the clue giver if we'll but gnaw on it and chew on it and search for it. God has provided in many ways, which I'm about to show you, treasures for those of us who will feast and will find ultimately that He Himself is the treasure. That as we're engaging these clues, maybe these things, these things that we've never really seen before, we're going, whoa, man, that's awesome. But we're not being led to some elusive golden treasure. We're being led to the treasure of knowing our God better and knowing His character better and seeing how He operates better and treasuring the gospel more. You'll adore His design and His plan more if you pay attention and are willing to dig in. Lazy people don't find treasure. I was really tempted not to share this thing with you because it's really kind of more like a seminary class. But one of the things that I was most upset about when I went to seminary is why wasn't I taught these treasures when I was in church for the last 35 years? I mean, I was mad. I'm hacked. If people went to seminary to go get these goods, why didn't they give me some of that? So I don't feel bad about giving you some of these sort of things. It might be more seminary-like, but man, I got excited in some of my seminary classes. And for me, there's not a big difference. I don't care if it's seminary or not. When you're unpacking the truth and you're digging into his treasures, man, it's good, good medicine. So I want to show you this story structure. This, this thing, this little diagram here where you see A, B, C, D, E, F, and then X, and then moving backward, F prime, E prime, D prime, C prime, D prime, and A prime, that's what's called a chiasm. Do you all have that in front of you? You didn't get one? Does anybody have two that they can share as a couple? Yeah, if a couple has one. Does anybody else not have one? Okay. This is called a chiasm. 
All right, this, this was a very useful instrument in teaching. You know, it might be the way people remember a story. You know, you use, um, what's it called? Um, when you remember some acrostics, you know, things like that to remember something. In many ways, this can be a tool for memory. It can also be a tool for argument. It can be just a literary tool that's just for the sake of beauty, of enjoying the beauty of a story, but it can also accentuate something. And that's what this little chiasm does right here. I want to walk you through it. I want to show you this. First of all, in chapter uh, 6, verse 9, there's kind of a little transitional introduction. I'm not going to go through every single one of these verse-wise, but I want to introduce you into what I'm talking about. Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Okay, that's a little introduction. Now look back down at A prime. Look straight down to the next transitional introduction. Chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole whole earth was dispersed. That's the second introduction for the next story. So see those as kind of um, bookends to a story, okay, in this chiasm. And now follow this on out. Look at the B. Noah and his world at the time of the flood. Those passages right there kind of describe, you know, the wickedness of mankind. Remember that whole deal? The verse that we looked at even when we started the intro tonight? And then look at number C, or letter C. There's the provision of the flood with a divine word from God where God has given this, he has a divine monologue with Noah. Okay, and that's right here in chapter 6, verses 13 through, 30, through 22, and the presentation of the covenant. And then in D, there's the embarkation, where they all climb on the boat. They load up all the critters, and then last, Shem, Ham, Japheth, all their wives, and Noah and their, his wife climbs on the ark. Okay? And then in E, the flood begins, chapter 7, verses 6 through 16. And then letter F, the triumphant flood, okay, where the flood is just beating the earth for 150 days. Okay, well, you read that. You may not be well acquainted enough with the, the, the story to remember that that's, that's what happened then. And then I'm not even going to touch the X yet. I want to move back down to the F prime. The flood wanes, also 150 days. Back down to E prime, the flood ends. D prime, they disembark. C prime, provision for the post-flood world with another divine monologue where God covenants to preserve the earth. Then down to B prime, Noah and the world conditions after the flood. I mean, look back, look back up at B, Noah and the world at the time of the flood. I mean, this is remarkable when you see something. Now, realize I didn't find this. Okay, you're like, man, you're the man. How did you do this? I had help on this too. I have tools that help me. I, I wish I could say I could just read that story and, oh, there's a chiastic, chiastic. I know, guys, Greg Field is one that can. I believe there's a chiastic pattern there. Okay, thank you, Greg. But then A prime, there's that next transitional introduction. But what this chiasm does is what does it set off in this story? I want to make sure you're getting this. X, God remembers Noah. That's huge. You might think that, that that's, that's not that big a deal, but you've got to see that as the but God of Ephesians chapter 4. I mean, you've got to see that as the thief on the cross that turned to Christ in his last moments. And what did he say to Christ? Remember me. 
you got to see that as the turning point. That was the turning point for the thief. This is our, this is our God remembers. <laughs> That's why, you know, it's, it, for me, it's not some lame academic literary tool. For me, it's an opportunity to worship a God that has such incredible design and such beauty. Even a story I've read my entire life has this pattern in it that accentuates that God remembers his people. He makes a covenant with his people, and he follows through on his covenants, and he remembers his people. Okay? Now, let me show you a numerical pattern. Okay, I didn't, I didn't give that to you because that's less complicated. You don't have to actually have it in front of you. You may want to jot it down, but you may, just, you may not care. But you may care and just feel like I'm okay with not jotting it down. It's not like a major thing. In chapter 7, verse 4, there's seven days of waiting on the flood. In chapter 7, verse 10, that's reiterated. Seven days of waiting on the flood. So there's seven, and then there's seven, and then there's 40 days of flooding in chapter 7, verse 14. And then there's 150 days of water uh, prevailing on the earth. And then right under that, there's 150 days of water subsiding. And then right after that, there's 40 days of Noah waiting to get off the ark. And then after that, there's seven days more waiting. And then there's seven more down here. It's just crazy, the beauty of it. Seven, seven, 40, 150, 150, 40, seven, and seven. It's just incredible, the design. You know, I got excited about that in seminary class, and some of the guys I went to seminary with are like, dude, why are you so excited about that? I think it's awesome. Maybe y'all don't, but I do. Maybe you do. Maybe you're like, that's pretty cool. I hope you are. Here's something else that's pretty cool. Have y'all ever been, or how many of y'all ever been to the the thing where, um, what's it called, the Sixth Floor Museum or something where Kennedy was shot from? Is that the Sixth Floor? The, yeah, is it Sixth Floor Museum? Is that what it's called? Something like that? Y'all know what I'm talking about. That They have this display there, and I've been told by somebody that part of it is fictional and that it's not, not even there anymore. It may still be there. It's been a long time that compares Lincoln and Kennedy. Have y'all ever seen that? And the similarities between the two, like the day they were killed or the day they were born or the day they were inaugurated and how their names are spelt or all kind of weird stuff that they have in common. And I remember how amazed I was at that. turns out, at least I heard from somebody else, that a lot of that's fictional. That's a long way of sharing with you that there's a lot of similarities here between Noah and guess who? 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 Jesus? Okay, yeah, that's good. Who else? This Noah story. And who else? Okay, yeah, good. Us? Yeah, okay. Who else? Move backward. <laughs> no, uh, no, move backward. Adam. Yeah. It's Adam's story all over again. I mean, a lot of that language even comes up, too, about him being the image of God. And I'm going to show you some of, these, some of these pictures. First of all, both worlds are created out of a watery chaos. Remember chapter 1, verse 2, where he hovers above the waters, you know, and he creates out of that environment? Both worlds are created out of a watery chaos. Second one, both Adam and Noah are uniquely associated with the image of God. In both cases, he says, here you are, you're created Go forth in the image of God. Okay? Both walk with God. Remember that? Remember how Noah walked with God in the cool of the day? 
And then also, I mean, um, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, and then Noah also walked with God. Both rule the animals. Adam ruled by naming, and Noah ruled by preserving. Both get the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and rule. I mean, an identical mandate. Both work the ground. Both follow a similar pattern of sin. Adam was eating, and Noah was drinking. Which we didn't read that far, but that's what happens to Noah. Adam was eating and Noah was drinking. You see why the Lord's Supper has such importance for the people of God? So we can eat and drink rightly. I mean, when you start connecting these dots, you're like, oh man, this is just crazy. My Bible has this integrity and union that I've never appreciated before. The result of both of their sin is shameful nakedness. Think about that. And in both cases, they are clothed by another. Isn't that just crazy? <laughs> Man, Kennedy and Lincoln got nothing on this. I mean, this is, this is crazy. Both have three named sons. Now, we know that Noah and, I mean, Adam and Eve, that they were busy, that they were, having, they were being fruitful. But we know that there's three specific named sons. They were Cain, Abel, and who was the third? Seth. Okay. And in Noah's case, it was Shem, Japheth, and uh, Ham. Now, among both sets of sons is a mixture of judgment and hope, a mixture of division into the elect and division into the non-elect. And then there's a continuing conflict between the seed of the serpent, or the Cainites, and the seed of the woman, the Sethites. Okay, you're going to see that both in both sets of sons. Now, there's a very clear... Let me show you something else before we actually climb in. I, actually, i got a few things to show you tonight. We may even not get into the actual story yet, but it'll unlock and unleash the story for you when we do this. There's a very clear recreation of creation in this story. Some of that you've gotten in just the comparison between Noah and Adam. But let me show you this. Um, God's Spirit hovered over the waters. Okay, we know that in the creation account. But here the wind, that same word that's used for God's Spirit hovering over the waters, that same word, that's wind, God's wind hovered over the waters. And that same wind is the same wind that blew the waters when the waters abated from the flood. It's the same exact word. God divided the waters in Genesis. Remember how He divided the waters from below to from the waters above? And here God regathers the waters above and below, mostly below. Okay, you remember when we were low-crawling through Genesis 1, that when, it, when he, he seemed to, or we believed, that when he gathered the waters below and above, that it was kind of like a big terrarium. And I, I asked then, I'm, I'm curious now that we have kind of a, a different group, have any of y'all ever made a terrarium? Okay, where you get the wax paper, you get a big pickle jar, and you put some soil in there, and how it gets all that condensation in there. That's probably more like what the earth was like before the flood. That there were tons of waters above, there were tons of waters below. It was like this big greenhouse. Okay, and that's, it'd be a prime, perfect environment for dinosaurs, big reptiles to live. That probably the whole, not geography, but the whole, um, what ography am I thinking of? Huh? Ge- ge- geolo- geology? Ecology. There, I knew it was an ology. The whole like, ecology of the world changed from the flood, where all these waters above likely went whoosh, and all these waters below likely went, whoosh. 
But then he separated, he separated them again. This may be why this is the only day in creation, the second day that he doesn't say, and it was good. Knowing that I'm going to undo this later. Which is, you know, we can only presume that. But it's the only day of the six days that he actually created that he didn't say, and this was good. And you just have to wonder, is this because you're going to undo this later in the flood? God separated dry ground there, and here again, dry ground emerges in stages. Birds are in flight in both stories. Living creatures are called out from the ark as God spoke them into existence in creation. And the family appears again, all bearing God's image, male and female. In this case, it's Noah and his wife, and then the sons and their wives. But then there's the cultural mandate in both cases. It's renewed as God gives them dominion over creation. Be fruitful and multiply and rule the earth. Now here's the time frame. I, I have to admit that I, before really preparing for this, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time, I think, teaching the kids periodically. I kind of, fa- uh, not fabricated, but kind of connected the dots. That It was about a year that he was on the ark. But you can actually piece it together in detail. And we can actually make a little calendar. So I want to kind of describe to you the calendar. On February 10th, 600, we're just going to call it, it's not 600 B.C. or 600 A.D., it's just 600. It's the 600th year of Adam's life, I mean Noah's life. Okay, we're going to say it's February the 10th. And Now, we know that in Passover that the people of Israel, the people of God got a whole new calendar. I don't know how, much, how similar that calendar is to the calendar we're using. So I don't know that this calendar works the same way, but a day is a day. So we can put it in our terms and figure it out. So we're going to nail it down by February the 10th. There's the announcement of the flood. That's in chapter 7, verse 4. And here's how we can do this. Some of this is extrapolation. In chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, okay, again, that's for us, February, on the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. So we're going to put that at February 17th, 600. 600 Noah. (laughs) And the reason we can say that's the 16th and we know that the first one was the 10th is because it says that he waited for for seven days. He warned them, okay, it's coming in seven days. Over the period of that seven days, they're loading up the critters. Come on, elephants. Man, let's save the elephants for last. Let's get all the little guys on first. I, I, you know, they're spending seven days, and then last, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, get in the boat. Come on, wives. And then on the 17th is when the floodgates opened. And then in chapter 7, verse 12, the flood lasts for 40 days. So the flood goes until March 27th, year 600, Noah. Okay, and then fourth... The waters triumph. When how long did they triumph over the earth? 150. Good, good. Y'all are piecing it together. And that's chapter eight, verse four. And that goes until January, February, March, April, May, June, July, seventeenth, six hundred Noah. And then the mountaintops appear next in chapter eight, verse five. And that would be on October the first, six hundred. Okay. And then number six is the raven is sent out. That's chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. And that would be on November the 10th, 600. And then there's a dove's second flight on 
eight ten, chapter eight verse ten, would be on November twenty fourth, six hundred. The dove's third flight, chapter eight verse twelve, would be December first. Would be his anniversary just a few days ago, six hundred Noah. Okay. And then the waters dry up, chapter eight verse thirteen, and that's January first, six oh one. And then the last thing that happens in the whole story is that Noah and his crew leave the ark in chapter 8, verses 14 through 18, on February 27th, 601. So they spent a year and 10 days on the ark. Some of the animals, the ones that were loaded up first, spent a year and a couple of weeks. (laughs) When you really piece that together, you go, whoa, this was no small thing. This wasn't Gilligan's Island trip, a day-long, what's it, how's the song go? Out for a day-long cruise or something? A three-hour cruise, that's what it was, yeah, that's right. Now, let me introduce you to the historicity. And this is, uh, to me, this is the most interesting of the preparatory work. Um, I think it's probably going to be next week before we actually climb in because I want to just discuss this historicity. Now, when you hear that word, you might be like, Oh, this sounds like this is going to be really academic and boring. It's not. I just want to prepare you that this, this is the sweetest part of the whole thing to me. There's something called the deluge myth. Anybody know what a deluge is? Yeah. It's, it's a fancy way of saying a toad drowner. You know, man, we had a deluge today, boy. If you hear somebody say that, they're trying to show off their vocabulary. But the, really, the, they're, they're, it's called the deluge myth is what this thing is called. This, this flood account, turns out, is all over the world. In culture, in culture after culture, continent after continent, they have a story of a worldwide flood. Now, we're going to talk about the importance of that in a moment. They have a, a version of a deluge myth, but the three most similar accounts are in Mesopotamia accounts, and those are the Sumerian account, where there's a hero called Zyustra, or Ziusdra. Okay, that's one. Then there's an Akkadian account, where a hero is Atrahasis. And this is probably the most popular account that I've heard before. The Babylonian account from the Gilgamesh epic with the hero Utnapishtim. You've ever heard of that? Have any of y'all ever heard of that? Utnapishtim? Yeah, some of y'all. That's the, yeah, if, you, if you've done any sort of... English college, English lit, ancient lit sort of work, you'll read the Gilgamesh epic. And it's a story of a worldwide flood where their version of Noah is Utnapishtim. Now, while these accounts have similar kind of storylines, the Noah story is very different, as you would hope. <laughs> but it's, it's different in, in, for, for good reason. And it's worth just considering in what ways it's different. And in the course of unpacking the verse-by-verse treatment of it uh, here in these next couple weeks, I'm going to show you some of those differences. Even without telling you those whole stories, I'll just bring up the differences. But there's a couple that I want to draw out before we even begin. A few differences up front. In the Mesopotamian stories, in these three accounts, the Sumerian, the Akkadian, and the Babylonian, um, their gods bring, bring a flood to control overpopulation. Now, that's just petty, isn't it? I don't even like that kind of God. 
I mean, overpopulation. And here, if you think that's not petty, another reason that they bring the flood, these, these Mesopotamian gods, is uh, because it's noisy. Because mankind is noisy. And they're like, oh, it's just too noisy. Let's just send a flood and drown all of them. Who wants to love that God? Give me a break. Now, contrast that with our God who brings the flood because of the wickedness of man. Now, that's not petty. If we're talking about a God that's holy, and you're talking about wickedness, and he sends the flood for that reason, that's not petty. That makes sense. That's justice. That's holiness. It fits with the character of what you would hope a God would be like. So there's the potential for people to read about the Gilgamesh epic or read, you know, the Akkadian version and go, well, who says our version is right? And, uh, you know, why, why, how, what if these versions are right? And if it's represented on every continent and every culture, who says they're not? Take a look at their God. Find out if their God is a bonehead or not. Find out if their God is worthy of worship. That's, that's, our, our God defends himself just by his very nature, when you get to know him and you go, aha, now that's Yahweh. That's the one true God. Pretty exciting. But here's some other just brief facts. For these stories, for the Mesopotamian stories, once the flood comes, they're actually frightened by the flood, the gods, not the people. The flood kind of gets out of hand, and they're frightened and spooked by it. Not exactly a God I want to follow. Okay, scaredy cat God. Petty, scaredy-cat God, but our God, on the other hand, is in complete control. Something else that's true about the Mesopotamian accounts is that these gods, afterward, they too have a sacrifice. Utnapishtim and these other guys that I can't say their names even close to right, they have a sacrifice at the end, but their little petty gods, they can't wait to get in on this sacrifice. They're hungry like a wolf to to feast on this sacrifice. But our God, on the other hand, is gentle. And he says it's a pleasing aroma. And in fact, he pronounces that he would never do it again. That's the character of our God. Man, when you contrast these Mesopotamian, Babylonian, pagan gods with our God, there just is no different. I mean, there's just no comparison. Our God is different altogether. And his character speaks for itself. Now, here's where I wanted to go. How do you think these stories of a worldwide flood got to all these different cultures? I, I'm curious, Bill, did you grow up hearing a story of a worldwide flood? Not in a, like an African story? Uh, what I read is that Africa, the African continent, is the one continent where it's not real prominent, where the story is not real prominent, which is interesting because it's so close to Egypt and and then the, the Holy Land, I would have thought that it would have, you know, Mesopotamia and all that would have morphed over there. But why, why do you think all these continents would have these stories? Cave engravings? Well, why, well, let's go back beyond that. Why would they have them in the first place? Huh? Well, they, they would have come from Ham, Ham Japheth, and uh, Shem. And potentially from somebody that was from the line of Canaan, or Cain, the Canaanites, and may have just gotten it wrong. What are your other thoughts? I heard some other thoughts back there. Okay, let's, let's think even bigger picture than that. 
Why do, why do you think it would show up in all these other cultures? I'm looking for a very specific answer that's just probably the most obvious one. But, huh? No, that's not what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking even more simplistic than that. It's the obvious thing that in terms of apologetics, if you're talking with somebody that's like, hey man, um, what, what if I say there is no God? And you, well, hold on a second. Let me, let me develop this thought and then I'm, I'm a, I'll get you. But if, if somebody says uh, there is no God and you've got to provide evidence, oh yes, there is. Let me show you evidence of God. This story about a worldwide flood pops up. Now, I could give you an example. Um, indiscriminate. No, that's not the word I'm looking for. Uniform definition. Uniform is not the word I'm looking for either. The definition of beauty. Why is it that a guy that's a drug dealer and a, guy, a mom that stays at home and a guy that, that is, I don't know, I don't know, just I'm taking just this weird sampling of people can all drive by a mountain range that's a beautiful mountain range and go, man, that's beautiful. Why is it that a mountain range can be beautiful to everybody? Because God put his fingerprints on it. He's built us. He's made it that way. It testifies to the godness that there is a God, the fact that this, I wish I could find the word I'm looking for, where all this cross-sampling of people can all look at this and go, that's beautiful. It's not beautiful to preserve itself, as Charles Darwin would argue. Universal beauty, this, this inherent beauty that is not preserving. It doesn't preserve its. It's not beauty, so it preserves itself, as Darwin would say, that something's beautiful, so you enjoy it, so you don't kill it. <laughs> it's not um, survival of the most beautiful. It's, he's built it into it. So what does that have to do with this? Bud, did you have an answer for that, or did I confuse everybody more? Yeah, could be for those guys. Yeah, I, I'm thinking so, uh, what I'm about to say is so basic that you're going to be like, well, no, duh. But it's not a no, duh. When you're talking about an apologetic argument, why would this story pop up in all these different continents? Because it really happened. That's why. You think about all these cultures, all these continents that are so disconnected from each other, that are so different, yet they all have this same story. Rather than discount the Noahic flood, it bolsters the reality of the event. The fact that this story shows up on every continent. Now, it's, sure, it's certainly gotten kind of messed up. You think about what, what happened between the flood and where we are now that would cause dispersion. Babylon. Or not Babylon, um, Babel, exactly, Tower of Babel, where they spread all over. And with them goes the story. Some of them, Canaanites, the seed of Satan, may be twisting the story, yet some of them, the seed of Seth, and getting the story right and actually recording it and writing it down. That's pretty awesome to think about. It's, it's like this obvious no-brainer, well, no, duh. Somebody said, well, give me evidence for the worldwide flood. Well, how about this? Just about every culture in the history of man has had a story about a worldwide flood. Explain that, Darwin. 
Go ahead, Charles. I'm listening. You can't do it. The only explanation is because it really happened. <laughs> because this Bible is true. Man, this is, this is sweet when you hit little simple pictures, simple realities like this. Now, No, they're not dates-wise, because they're so weird. You know, we're talking about ancient. Yeah, you're talking about the lengths. and all. They're, they're different enough where, have you, have you all ever done the exercise? My, my, my son Luke did this in Scouts, where you sit in a circle. And this is why I think the stories are so different. You sit in a circle, and, you know, you lean over to one, one kid, and you tell him a story. And then you say, okay, pass the story around the circle. And then the story goes around the circle. By the time it gets back to the last kid, you say, okay, we'll tell the story. And it's just so different from what it was. And it has some similarities, but it's so different from what it was in the first place that I think that's what's happened to the story. But the beauty is that the Sethites recorded it. The Sethites who are carried on through Abraham, through the people of God, through ultimately who wrote Genesis? Moses, right. So the fact that it's recorded, I think, uh, and that God is guarding the message in his people, I think is the reason that we can trust that this story is true. Because it also it reveals the character of a God that's worthy of worship. Not a petty, goofy, scaredy-cat God. That's a good, this is the best story. It's the one I want to see a movie about. Man, I wish somebody who had reputable movie-making skills would make a story like this. But this should give us reason to appreciate the written word. Because the truth is not morphing and melting and mutating through word of mouth. The truth is given from God to man and recorded for all time. This thing is not mobile. It's a, it's a, it's a line in the sand. It doesn't move. That's good. Okay. Anybody have any final thoughts? We're going to start going verse by verse, starting in chapter 6, verse 9. I encourage you in these, this next week, Read this thing. Read it through. About the whole section that we read tonight, if you really want to read on, go right ahead. But read it over a couple times and get acquainted with the story because we're going to massage this story, and we're really engaging a story that likely you've heard a hundred times too. You're like, oh, okay, I got that. My kids would do that. Oh, I already got that story. (laughs) No, wait, wait a second. Don't you dare say that. This book is alive. It's living it's, that word is, is communicating. and We were talking this morning with the kids, and we were reading in the Shepherd's Guide that Hebrews chapter 4 passage about the word being living and sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and I asked them what they thought about uh, this word being alive and what it meant to dine on it. And I was thinking about yogurt. Anybody eat yogurt with live cultures? You know li- yogurt with live cultures? You take that little bacteria in, and it goes into your digestive tract, and it goes to work on you, and, man, it hooks you up. Boy, it takes good care of you and everything, you know? I mean, we don't have to go into a lot of detail, but it's good stuff, you know, and you're glad it's in there. And that's what the Word does. You eat it, and then it's alive, and it goes to work on you, and it changes you, and it morphs you, and you may not necessarily feel it in a moment, but over time, you're just a different person, and you're healthy spiritually. I know you wanted to end with that image tonight of yogurt cultures, and so... I didn't give anybody a chance to ask any questions. We've gone over a couple minutes. Believe in worldwide flood? No. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know of any evolutionists that do support a worldwide flood. That's usually a creationist flood team that go together. People that believe in creation, believe in the flood, and then there's a community out there that rejects that. Kind of a contemporary scientific community. And I want to emphasize that, a contemporary scientific community. Because the more, um, not ancient in the word, but the more historical scientific community, they don't discount any of this. Charles Darwin did a lot to take the scientific community in a different direction. And, uh, but it's not the entire scientific community either. There are some reputable scientists that stand squarely on this word. So, you know, there's the temptation to throw out science, say, oh, we're going to believe that by faith, so we have to throw out science. Baloney. No, we look at science through the lens of the word, not the other way around. When you start to look at the word through the lens of science, you're putting the Bible here and you're putting science up here. And science is a moving target. This doesn't move. Okay. Good study now. I'm sorry we didn't get into it. Yeah, you mentioned how challenging it had been for Donald Clark for years. I think how challenging it was for him to work with his two sons for likely 100 years building the boat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. unthinkable. And for Mrs. Noah to be feeding them and, <laughs> I mean, taking care of I mean, how hard is it, wives, when your husband's working on a project around the house? You putting in hardwood floors? Yeah, Brad Cardwell putting in hardwood floors in his house. I mean, I bet Chrissy was miserable. I mean, Scott's over there helping him. I bet Tiffany was like, man, where's Scott? That's hard. That's got to be, and it was probably 120 years or so, 100 to 120 years that he was working on that art. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about some of that drama and some of the details. We're going to bring out some of the details of that and gnaw on it together. So read it ahead of time. Appreciate you all bearing with me tonight on these, uh, these things. It's not academic. Man, these are treasures. These are treasures. And um, when you find them, man, you're the treasures. The lazy people don't get treasures. You got to work at it. So let me pray. God, thanks for our time together tonight. We treasure your beauty in revealing yourself and your story and your emphasis. And uh, in this story of remembering uh, Noah, we are so thankful that you are a remembering sort of God, a graceful God and that you have a plan and a purpose and a design. We're so grateful for this account, and I uh, just pray that you will just unfold it and unpack it in these next few weeks, and it will become part of us, and we'll own it, and it will own us, and that we'll adore you more, that it will invade Tuesday and our commute and our cubicle and our dinner table and our, uh, just our whole lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.